Reconstructionist Radio presents Justice in His Kingdom, examining the religious nature of justice with Jerry Lynn Ward and Roger Oliver. I'm Roger Oliver with Jerry Lynn Ward. Welcome to Justice in the Kingdom. Our guest today is Stephen Baskerville, author of The New Politics of Sex, The Sexual Revolution, Civil Liberties, and the Growth of Government Power. Stephen is a retired professor of government at Patrick Henry College and research fellow at the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society and the Independent Institute. He may be retired from that as well. He writes on comparative international politics and on political ideology with an emphasis on religion, family policy, and sexuality. His writings appear in such publications as the Washington Post, the American Spectator, the National Review, among others. He has appeared on national and international radio and television programs, including The O'Reilly Factor, Hardball with Chris Matthews, The Dennis Prager Show, and The Michael Medved Show, among others. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, There's a quote on page 14. Let's start with that. It says, sexual politics, as the term originators made clear, is an ideology that uses sexuality as an instrument to satisfy the human craving for power. Starting with that, connect up for us the subtitle, The the Sexual Revolution, Civil Liberties, and the Growth of Government Power. Briefly, what we'd like to do is focus on chapter 3, and especially the civil liberty part, but connect up for that for our listeners. Those three, those three issues. Well, one of the main themes of the book is the idea of, of ideology, sexual ideology, or what some people mm-hmm. are now calling gender ideology. Uh, and the book is not about the cultural impact of the sexual revolution or about sexuality itself. It's specifically about the political impact, the impact on government policy, um, and the role of government policy in, in promoting uh, the sexual revolution itself. Uh, my field is, is government political science. So I f- focus on that, which other people haven't, um, haven't done so much. And my argument is that, that uh, there is a gender, uh, or as I call it, a sexual ideology. Uh, it is similar in some ways, uh, the successor in some ways, to Marxist ideology, um, fascist ideology, nationalist ideology, the, the great ideologies of the, of the modern world. Uh, and this is the latest one. It's not based on economic um, or social factors like Marxism is. It's not based on nationality or ethnicity or race like nationalism is. It's based on sexuality, and it uses sexuality as a currency, as a political currency, a political a means to acquire political power. Uh, and mm-hmm. one of the roles, one of the uh, manifestations of this is the enormous growth of government power for many reasons mm-hmm. that I detail in the book. And consequently, the, the corollary is, is the restriction on, on individual freedom and civil liberties. Yes. I, I read, you mentioned E. Michael Jones, Levito Dominandi, Sexual Liberation, Political Control, which I read cover to cover. And reading your book was like reading an update, a continuation of the same thing. It's an ancient problem, uh, it seems to me. But uh, so, so it's not new per se, Although it seems like it is these now on chapter three, criminalizing sex and gender crimes on page 105, it says uh, you write in America, basic civil liberties and procedural safeguards are now routinely ignored. Grand juries are neutered. Frivolous prosecutions abound and the innocent are railroaded into prison through plea bargains and other high pressure devices that border on extortion. Walk, walk us through how how this has happened with some examples. 
Um, well, first of all, what you said about ideology, I would just, just comment that um, sexual ideology has kind of tagged along with many of the other great revolutions and ideologies of recent uh -huh. history. For example, the Russian Revolution, the American, uh, the French Revolution, um, even the, the American Revolution to some extent had elements of uh, feminist ideology uh, in them, and the, the fascist movements had um, w had elements of, of homosexualist ideology in them. This yeah. is all well documented. I'm not the first to point this out. What I've argued is no. that here we see that these this this sexual ideology has kind of emerged from the margins where it was in the in, in past forms of radicalism, and it's really seen it's kind of now it's it's achieved its own day in the sun. It's it's the dominant one yeah. I argue on the political left. Um, as far as the the curtailment, the constricting of personal freedom and, and civil liberties, uh, there's many ways that this happens. I started the book, my previous book, focused on the divorce industry. And I was quite shocked uh, when I began to uh, investigate the divorce industry and, and to go beyond the cliches about ugly divorce and nasty custody battle. And I was I was very shocked to find how um, the rights, especially of parents, were severely constricted immediately the, the moment that they were pulled into a divorce, even if they were completely legally unimpeachable, no, guilty of no uh, or suspected of no legal infraction whatsoever. Uh, their children were seized, their, their bank accounts were seized, they could be thrown out of their home. Um, I can detail that more if you like, but that's where I started this in my previous mm -hmm. book called Take It Into Custody. The can I interject right now? I'm sorry? Uh, Dr. Baskerville, can I interject because uh, on the same topic as Taken Into Custody, one thing that I'm extremely interested in as an attorney is how all of this has impacted the justice system and one thing I found very interesting and taken into custody was what you wrote in there about no fault divorce. Mm -hmm. Can you can you just kind of divert from the, uh, the newest book and, and just explain to the folks out there, uh, especially in Texas, how no fault divorce came about? Well, yes, it's a very interesting uh, question because there again, I was I was shocked to this, to go beyond the cliches. Um, about uh, no-fault divorce and discover what it really meant. It's a, it's a completely innovative legal concept. The idea mm -hmm. of no-fault justice, of course, is, is a contradiction in terms, I discovered. There's no such thing as, as no-fault justice. Um, uh, and it, uh, I found that because of this introduction of this innovative principle, it was setting aside all of the procedural safeguards, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, all the procedural safeguards that one normally expects in a judicial procedure within the system of the English common law. Um, uh, there was a presum the presumption of, of innocence was set aside. Uh, innocent people could be um, deprived of their most basic um, uh, rights uh, under the common law for simply the fact that it's the only procedure I know of so far where a completely legally innocent person suspected of no wrongdoing can be summoned to court and find himself or herself the subject, the object of, of directives, government orders, issued curtailing uh, their personal freedom, including their um, their right to be with their own children, their right to raise their own children, their right to be in their own home, in some cases, their right to their property. Um, all of these uh, basic civil rights uh, are just routinely ignored. In fact, I go through in that book, I go down the Bill of Rights point by point, and I show that virtually every uh, article in the Bill of Rights, the US Bill of Rights, is routinely violated in family court. And this has never been refuted. Nobody has ever challenged any any point in that book. It's all accepted. They they come up with various excuses 
and cliches like, oh, well, this is the divorce. It's a, it's a harsh matter. Um, but, you know, the, the, the violation of basic constitutional rights is just, is just astounding. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, the divorce system undercuts all of the protection. It introduced a poison into the, um, into the legal system. And I argued, I predicted in that first book, that this was not going to be quarantined, if you'll if you excuse the term. Um, this could not be limited simply to the divorce system. Once you introduce these principles into the law, these precedents, they will spread to other parts of the law. Other places, people's rights will be will be taken away. You can't, as Martin Luther King used to say, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Um, you can't just limit these principles to one sphere of, of, of the judiciary. And so then after having written Taken into Custody, I began to explore the divorce, the sorry, the sexual revolution more generally, more widely. And I found that many of the principles, the patterns, the models, the things which I had found with the divorce industry was already being replicated elsewhere in the political and legal systems. Uh, it became a pattern, a larger pattern, which I, I began to see in other areas um, of not only the law, but of, of government policy, of executive and legislative policy as well. So this, the newest book, take, um, The New Politics of Sex, is an effort to show this larger pattern and the kind of modus operandi that now operates throughout the whole um, sexual revolution and its political uh, manifestations. Mm -hmm. Well, it, much of the criminalization comes not from prosecuting, uh, prosecution of existing crimes, but from the proliferation, proliferation of new ones and from the politicization of the criminal justice system. That's a quote. Everywhere, elsewhere, you point out that these new crimes are vaguely defined, and this leads to arbitrary and selective enforcement. Uh, can you give us some other examples? I, for example, I just read this morning that uh, one of the problems with this lockdown is that the uh, terms of the lockdown are vaguely defined, and they're often arbitrarily applied and abused by the uh, police forces. That's a big complaint, but and it seems to me like that's an extension of exactly what you wrote about in the book. Am I right? It could well be. Yes, it could well be. We, what we, um, what I refer to in that book, in the book, is um, what I call gender crimes, and we've seen these right. on the on the front pages in the last few years. Um, gender crimes are just general. Um, uh, crimes of a uh, so-called crimes of a sexual nature, but they're again, they're as you say, vague. They're not clearly defined. Um, terms like sexual harassment, uh, uh, sexual abuse, um, sexual misconduct. We hear these all the time. Now, are these are these things crimes? Are they civil infractions? Are they simply matters of personal rudeness? Um, what exactly is their status in the law? It's it's very very unclear. Even something the most sensational of all, uh, probably, are um, sexual assault and rape which would seem to be a fairly clear-cut, straightforward um, matter. But in fact, we are seeing throughout the, the law in, in many countries now that rape has been, as the feminists say, redefined uh, to mean something other than what plain English suggests it means. I think we all know what plain English, what rape means in mm -hmm. plain English. But uh, mm -hmm. just like domestic violence actually was the first one of these. So we all know what violence means in plain English. But uh, according to the law now, in many jurisdictions, domestic violence can mean can include insults, it can include name calling, it can include what is called psychological violence, which is a, a meaningless term. It can um, it can include what's called economic violence, which is a, a term that generally means refusing to give someone uh, refusing someone's demands for money. Um, but uh, again, it has no precise definition. So. Uh, where domestic violence shades off into sexual harassment or where sexual harassment shades off into sexual assault 
where that shades off into rape. Uh, these are these are these are extremely vague and unclear. And what it means is that a person, if you want to accuse somebody, you can find something in the hodgepodge, yeah. something in the community chest of, of crimes, um, new crimes to pin on on that person. Uh, you can make the, the the defendant fit the crime rather than the other way around. Well, one of the related problems is uh, throwing out the rules of evidence. An accusation is taken as is is evidence to to convict someone. I saw that, and we saw that. It said light went on reading this about the Kavanaugh hearings, what was happening there. Can can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, the, um, the issue of evidence. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, many of this, the, the epicenter of this, the font from which much of this proceeded was the, was the divorce system where people would be, um, uh, <clears throat> where there was no, no evidence required because in most, with no fault divorce, nobody's actually, you're not necessarily required to be guilty of any legal infraction. But you could see this, this spread from there, for example, again, to domestic violence, where um, uh, most people accused of domestic violence are not tried uh, before a jury of their peers. They're not either. They're never either convicted or acquitted of anything. Um, this is the way we mm -hmm. think of crime: as something you're you're formally charged. Your evidence is brought forward. Um, you're either acquitted, in which case you're left alone, or you're you're convicted, in which case you're you're punished legally. Mm -hmm. uh, with domestic violence, that's not happen. That doesn't happen. Uh, generally, the accused is simply removed from the home, because in most cases, mm -hmm. a domestic violence accusation. The purpose of that is to is to gain advantage in, in a divorce case. So the person mm -hmm. is typically removed from the father, typically the man is typically removed from the home, uh, incarcerated temporarily for a weekend or a week or a month, uh, and then forced to go undergo um, some kind of government uh, mandated uh, psychotherapy classes of some kind about for, for batterers. Um, mm -hmm. And one study I've found, I quote in the book, showed that um, no one accused of domestic violence was ever acquitted. They, everybody was punished in some way. It may not mean a jail term or prison, but they would be punished mm -hmm. with some kind of uh, community service or some kind, usually some kind of a, a batterer's course, a class, which is very mm -hmm. time consuming and very expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, can I ask a follow-up question to that? Because um, as a, a female who came of age during the heyday of the beginning of feminism in the in the late 60s, early 70s. I, I know that women thought this was a, a way to liberty, all this was a way to liberty. Why do you think they thought that? And, and what has this resulted in for women? Because I don't see it as liberty. What do you think? Well, this is a very interesting um, uh, point. Um, and this is another of the themes of the book, is that there's two aspects two sides of the sexual revolution. There's the libertarian side and there's the authoritarian side. And they work in conjunction with each other. It's a dialectic. Um, and it's not chronological, although in the beginning we did think of this as a matter of you know, sexual liberation, women's liberation and so forth, free sex. Uh, what harm does it do? Who's, who, who's it hurting? Um, if we have mm -hmm. sex out of wedlock or um, you know, as much as we want for recreation. Um, so there was this, and there still is, this libertarian side, which says that sex should be uh, free, it should be uninhibited, it should be, it's no business of the government, or not only not of the government, it's no business of anybody, even your own family members or your own church members or your own uh, friends um, have no right to, to interfere or tell you in any way that what you're doing may be unwise. So it's this highly, highly libertarian attitude towards sex. But 
the corollary with this, which we're only, uh, well, it's, it's been present for a long time now, but it's, it's not clearly associated. But I try to delineate this in the book. The corollary to the libertarian sexuality is the authoritarian sexuality, the crimes. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. uh, let's have uh, free sex. Let's uh, un uh, not inhibit people toward having sex. But the free sex in the evening turns into a rape accusation in the morning. Um, divorce. Divorce is, uh, again, another um, uh, thing. What, what right does the government have to force us to continue a marriage? We should have the right to divorce at whim without even having to give any grounds. Well, the divorce, mm -hmm. the, 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 the free divorce uh, quickly becomes an accusation of, of, of uh, uh, it becomes an accusation of domestic violence. It removes one of the spouses uh, or parents from the home. It forces the other parents away from his children. Um, and basically deprives the children of, of one parent, usually the father. So, uh, in fact, the divorce machinery, as I say in both books, is, is the most repressive government machinery ever created in the Western world. Or, sorry, not in the Western world, but in, in the English-speaking world. Sorry. Um, and so the, all, of, all through the, the, this, this uh, sexual revolution, you can see this. The, the, the freedom, on the one hand, um, homosexuals uh, demanding sexual freedom, uh, freedom to, to, to practice their lifestyle in practice, which in, in private, which most people don't dispute. Um, but then they turn around and start demanding uh, controls on what other people can say and do and, and opinions and so forth and demand protection from, from criticism, immunity from criticism and, and to, to criticize um, homosexuality or homosexual politics or the homosexual lifestyle becomes a hate crime for which you can then be punished, pro by, legally punished or prosecuted. So mm -hmm. the, this has this is what has to be understood. This is what nobody's really pointed out. You mentioned E. Michael Jones. He he points this out in theory. He points this out in literary ways. Um, so you're right. My book is an attempt to to come along and show how his prophecy, if you like, about the yeah, libertarian <laughs> and the authoritarian uh, yeah. has been fulfilled in very concrete mm -hmm. um, government measures. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think what you're describing is what I know one writer termed anarcho-tyranny, anarchy combined with tyranny. That's a good point. Yes, uh, I mean, it's uh, a very good point. Uh, every revolution promises freedom. I mean, that's, that's one of the great promises of every revolution from the English, the French Revolution, uh, the Russian Revolution, you know, the Chinese, the Iranian, they all promised freedom from tyranny from the, from the, from the king or from the Shah or from the, the dictator. And then they turned around and um, some of them, not all, some of them turned around and imposed uh, tyranny far more repressive and, and draconian than, than that which they overthrew. Um, first, you have the rights of man in the French Revolution, and then you have the reign of terror. Uh, and um, this is, it's, it's uncanny how the sexual revolution, even though it hasn't overthrown governments yet uh, in, in a violent way, uh, is following this, this same kind of pattern that we've seen throughout modern history. Yeah, this, uh, the uh, French Revolution was permeated with the same with the same problem. I, I see a connection, maybe I'm that, that between all of this and identity politics, what they're calling identity politics. There are certain groups that are assumed to be innocent because they belong to a group, and there's a particular group in this that you point out that is always assumed to be guilty, and it's actually attacking the very foundations of the social order based on the family. Uh, maybe you could connect those the dots for us a little bit. Yes, um, this is, I mean, again, this is a, another area where we, we preached uh, in the 60s and 70s, we preached, you know, personal freedom, personal 
uh, liberation. Uh, but we didn't we didn't limit it to personal freedom from the state. Uh, we in, we we spread it to we wanted personal freedom not only from the from the from the repression of the government, but we also wanted personal freedom from from uh, family norms, family uh, uh, the, the, the the religion. Religion was cast mm -hmm. as a, right. in, in a villainous role. Um, so even mm -hmm. private forms of admonition or private forms of advice and morals and traditions, these also were cast into the you know into the flames, along with the state. Um, and so. Uh, what happened was we created this huge vacuum uh, where there were no norms. There were no, um, there, all of the traditional uh, values and norms, not only the, the, the government, the legal ones, legal constraints, but, but but moral constraints, religious constraints, families, friends, anybody who said anything about uh, critical of our lifestyle was consigned to the, you know, to, to, to a villainous role. So this vacuum opened up. Uh, where there were no values, and that vacuum has been filled by by radical ideology. Um, and this is one of the another theme of the book that I, I mentioned is, is the way that um, uh, what they've really done is they've redefined sin. They've really created a where sexual revolutionaries have, have 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 destroyed the old definition of sin, religion, uh, religious definitions of those uh, enforced by the family, by the neighborhood, by the friends, by the congregation. And replaced it with a government definition of sin, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, um, sexual uh, assault, sexual this and sexual that. Uh, and these, this new definition of sin, is really crime is what it is, um, is mm -hmm. not enforced by community norms, by non-coercive forms of, of, of pressure, of, of, of sanctions. It's enforced by the gendarmerie. It's, imposed by, it's, it's enforced by the police and by the courts and by the lawyers and by the jailers. Ultimately, so we've we've thrown out morals and we've replaced morals with ideology, and this is a mm -hmm. very very dangerous trend. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you can see it, for example. Uh, I mean, I, again, I found this first of all in the divorce industry, where you know when it, it used to be, if a family, if a couple was having problems in their marriage, they were supported by the you know the larger family, their parents, their uh, their friends, their neighbors, uh, um, maybe therapists. Uh, um, and, but this all this all went out, out the window. This was this was considered so. So family members are in the church, of course. The church would would help out. The church would intervene, and if necessary, the church mm -hmm. or the family or the extended family would knock their heads together and and tell them who's right and who's wrong and who's you know what, what's well. This all went out the window. Everyone decided well, this is this is judgmental and we mustn't do this. So who fills that vacuum when a couple is having difficulties in their marriage? Who who knocks their heads together? Who comes in and, and sorts it out? Lawyers. Uh, judges, uh, government mm -hmm. psychotherapists, um, mm -hmm. and they don't. And it's 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 a very blunt weapon uh, that we use. And they mm -hmm. have their own their own uh, self interest, uh, their own bureaucratic interest as well. So that's where we're at. Well, I yeah, I noticed uh, too something very interesting. You point out is not only are such religious ideas and uh, community ideas that used to exist ridiculed. In some cases, are criminalized. It's criminalizing political dissent. Uh, absolutely, yes, it is. Uh, I'm, I'm quite shocked about this, and it has reached that point. Um, it then turns around. Not only are the are the um, you know the non-political forms of criticism, um, you know, ridiculed and and um, and belittled, but they are. It gets to the point where they are they are not tolerated legally as well. Um, and that's true. I have a whole section of the book showing how the divorce system, for example, and other um, aspects of the, of, the, of the sexual revolution are 
having an extreme uh, impact on, on religious freedom, um, religious mm -hmm. like criticism of homosexuality, criticism of feminism, um, is uh, increasingly de defined as a, as a hate crime uh, and, and punished. Uh, parents' uh, decisions about the upbringing of their children, um, uh, for example, the religious upbringing, the education of their children, are routinely curtailed. Um, Again, that started with divorce cases, but there's no reason it has to be limited to divorce cases. Mm -hmm. It can be extended out from there to any parents. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, um, yes, uh, these these radical ideas do not tolerate um, rivals. No. Uh, uh, Dr. Baskerville, you've talked a little bit about the role of the uh, church in all this and the role that the church once had. What is your thought? What, what, how has the church allowed itself to be marginalized and essentially silenced in all this. Do you have any ideas about that? Yes, I do. Uh, I didn't write about that a lot in the books, but I do. I have written about mm -hmm. it since in some articles, especially in Crisis Magazine, um, where I, I'm quite shocked at how little the churches have uh, had to say in the sexual revolution. Uh, it seems to me that if you look at the, you know, these very concrete violations of, of freedom and constitutional rights and so forth. The churches should be in a great position to be standing up and say, you know, to be frank, I told you so. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, this, this is a vindication of everything the churches have been saying for centuries, um, that mm -hmm. sexual freedom does lead to tyranny, that it doesn't have, it doesn't limit itself to, it's not just a bunch of scolding Aunt Sally's, um, you know, telling us off for being naughty. Um, it's, it's, there are concrete reasons the churches are, um, have always been opposed to, uh, for example, sex outside marriage. Look at the, uh, you go back to the Puritans and the, the problem of the Elizabethan poor law. Sex outside marriage creates, uh, well, what used to be called bastards or, and then the illegitimate children. And uh, but they created huge problems of, of, um, of uh, crime, poverty, um, uh, huge expenses on the parish. Uh, so the, there's, there's, there's reasons. Single parenthood has been connected with virtually every social pathology today from violent crime to um, to truancy, uh, to uh, substance abuse. It's the number one cause of, of social pathologies. So why aren't the churches standing up and saying, this, is, this vindicates everything we've, we've said about the negative, destructive social impact of sexual freedom? And yet the churches are saying nothing. You hear nothing about this from the churches. And I, I'm just appalled. And this, 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 this should be their day in the sun as far as, as standing right. up. And, 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 and they... And I found this, again, this started in the divorce system. Again, in a divorce system, if, if, if a couple's having trouble, the church is the obvious, the pastor. Who marries them? They have a stake in, in the divorce system, and yet they do nothing. Um, and so what does the couple do? They go, to, they go to lawyers. They go to judges. Even then, why can't the church intervene in a legal case? If there's a legal divorce, the church, it seems to me, has a, a standing as, a, as, a, as an interested party. They, they consecrated the marriage. In the Catholic Church, it's a sacrament. And then the, the state comes along and takes that same marriage covenant and simply tears it up. Well, that mm -hmm. it seems to me that gives the churches a, a standing to enter the courtroom and say, you have no right to tear this, this contract up. Uh, and you, you have an obligation to see to the, the well-being and the justice uh, of all the parties concerned. And yet the churches never do this. They, they, I've never known a church to intervene in, in, a, in a positive way in a, in a divorce case or, or any other uh, prosecution for a, for a, a sexual, sexual matter. Yeah. yeah. There's another problem here is that avarice that the uh, perverse judge says. So you mentioned in, in passing this huge 
the divorce industry and family law and all the people that are involved in that that have a have a benefit that a motivation and incentive to perpetuate it and the target group is as you point out is heterosexual men and uh, the the word patriarchy is uh, just right out of the pit of hell according to this uh, comment on that a little bit for us well yeah so again, we have the we have this, you know, de very deferential um, attitude, many of us, to, to lawyers and judges and courts. The judges wear robes as if they're priests and, and we treat them as, the, you know, the fonts of justice. But they're not um, any more objective or disinterested or impartial than anyone else. They are interested parties. In many ways, uh, courts have become bureaucratic agencies like any other, especially divorce cases, but others as well. Um, the bureau bureaucracies uh, notoriously create the problems and perpetuate the problems that they're supposed to be solving because it, they have a self-interest and they have no self-interest in, in solving the problem. Their self-interest is in to, to, to extend the problem and, and perpetuate it. So courts, it's well known, and I, I show this in the book, how courts um, uh, basically um, encourage, not only encourage, they, they force divorce on people who, who even who don't want it. Um, they punish people who try to um, save their marriages. Uh, the, the, the courts always take the, the, the side of the, of the, of the almost, almost always take the side of the, of the guilty party um, and encourage mm -hmm. wrongdoing. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the courts are not disinterested parties, uh, and neither are the bureaucratic agents. The welfare agencies uh, are not either. The forensic psychotherapists, not, not the independent psychotherapists, but those who make their living off court cases, um, they too all have a, are essentially uh, functionaries, bureaucrats. And they have uh, a self-interest in perpetuating the very problems they're supposed to be solving. So uh, it's not you can see this in, in the child protective services. Child protective services are supposed to be protecting children from child abuse. Yeah. And yet they create the, the very single parent homes where almost all the child abuse takes place. If you look at, at, at uh, a child abuse, it's almost entirely a phenomenon of single parent homes. And yet uh, social workers and child abuse uh, are agents are almost entirely feminists who do their best to break up families, remove fathers from their home, and they create the very environment where child abuse is most likely to occur. And the judges back them up on this because they all know that this is good for their for their business. I'm sorry to put it so harshly, but it's it's inescapable. It is what it is, as they say nowadays. Yeah, yeah, these counselors get paid through the courts. And I don't do family law, but I have done a few CPS cases and so have run into the kind of counselor that the courts always want to appoint and that CPS always wants appointed. And uh, they do not have traditional values at all. And I mean, my experience with them was that I thought they were screwballs. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you're not alone yeah. in that. I, I do have some bits on on forensic psychotherapy, and I emphasize the worst cases are those that are connected with the courts, um, because they, yeah, they do have an incentive to to break up families. Uh, and I'm not the only one who's who's uh, investigated the psychotherapy industry, um, and come to very harsh conclusions about it. Uh, and it, it is it is striking. Um, they they don't have an incentive to to solve or to to heal people. As they claim, they have an incentive to flame uh, tensions uh, as well, and that's that's precisely what they do. They for their own agendas, feminist for their own agendas. agendas. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. something else you point out is uh, 
there's a lot, this thing is uh, loaded with assertions with no evidence or argument. And, the, and you actually document and footnote many, many statistics that directly contradict this, uh, things like uh, the proliferation of rape and domestic abuse and child abuse and, and sex trafficking uh, that is contributing to this. There's an assumption of guilt, assumption of these numbers are true, and we have lost our objectivity, we lost our minds, and it's very, it's, uh, I had to chuckle it uh, once you said there, and I can't remember exactly how you said it, but you said you can't uh, uh, contradict their arguments because they really don't have any arguments. Yes. No, it is, it is striking. And, and my own field, you know, as, as a social scientist, I, I can see how this is ter there's terrible violence to the integrity of the social sciences because it, it just doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, the truth doesn't, it just goes out the window. Um, I can show peer-reviewed articles that are completely the, the opposite of the truth. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not, some of the, some of the issues I, I address in the book are, have already been thoroughly addressed by others. Some of them have not. Um, for example, the rape um, statistics are very clear. It's, it's very clear. Um, the, the, basically, the, the, the hysteria that's being fomented now over rape is, is precisely that. There's, there's just too many um, reputable, clear studies that have shown that this is a, a basically a hoax. Uh, domestic mm -hmm. violence is, is also the case. Uh, and yet, public policy is just completely oblivious uh, to these. The, the Congress, um, the courts... Um, carry on with things like the Violence Against Women Act and, and others, which have no basis in reality, or well, they almost certainly uh, exacerbate the problem. Mm -hmm. The flip side is that uh, the real guilty uh, often get away. It's too easy to prosecute the, the weak victim, the person that obeys the law. Yes, that's very very much the case. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and of course, it, you know, the, the idea that um, it's also, uh, easier, as a, a number of people that I quote point this out, it's easier to prosecute law-abiding citizens than dangerous criminals. Um, uh, the police have become increasingly bureaucratic agencies who find it easier to, um, to deal with uh, you know, law-abiding citizens who won't hurt them uh, than to deal with uh, hardened criminals who, who present serious problems. Yeah. Yes. Uh, how do conservatives get this, get it wrong and to get duped in. There's a couple of issues there that you, you develop. Uh, help us to understand where we're getting it wrong. Yes, I do. Uh, I do make some harsh judgments about conservatives. Uh, and I'm very disappointed uh, in that because um, it is striking that conservatives have uh, many of the right um, <clears throat> criticisms of the sexual revolution. They tend to be correct, um, but they don't follow it through. They then turn around and um, endorse um, measures that uh, w w do not solve the problem, but make, make the problem worse, uh, oftentimes because those measures are politically uh, popular. So, um, for example, uh, you know, conservatives lament uh, sexual freedom, they lament divorce, uh, they generally disapprove of feminism, and yet they approve measures like the Violence Against Women Act, which is a, a measure ostensibly against domestic violence, but in fact, which creates huge incentives for states to break up families and to um, uh, to remove fathers, innocent fathers, from their homes and their children, and raise more fatherless children. Another um, example, a horrible example that I, I describe in some detail, is the child support system. Uh, the child support mm -hmm. system provides huge uh, negative 
incentives, um, uh, very uh, negative, very, very bad incentives to break families up. It is not a way of providing for children whose fathers have absconded and abandoned them. It is a way of subsidizing single parents and removing innocent fathers from their home, and it provides an incentive to do it because you can take their cash uh, once they once they're their children. So it, it provides incentives not only for mothers but also for government officials, uh, state officials, to um, to uh, encourage divorce, to remove the father from the home, to confiscate everything he has, to put him in jail, um, because it fills up the government coffers. So it's a very uh, it's just a, a diabolical system. Yes. Well, uh, of course, we trust. I, I believe personally that it's unsustainable. And as you look at history, and of course, our perspective is that uh, Christ still owns history. And it goes on so long and it gets corrected. It may be a couple of generations. But what do you see as some things we could do to attack this uh, in our generation beginning right now? Practical things, perhaps. Many of the solutions that I offer uh, to in the books are um, solutions that are actually very simple in terms of mm -hmm. um, they don't require elaborate government engineering, social engineering. They don't require elaborate um, bureaucracies or spending. Um, the most simple solution would be to simply enforce the Constitution. I mean, if you, uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that if you take the Bill of Rights seriously, that, that most of these practices are, are horribly unconstitutional. Um, mm -hmm. The one, me one measure I, I would perhaps is not provided for in the Constitution is the rights of parents, and I've endorsed myself the um, you know the parental rights amendment that's been before Congress for a number of years um, and variations on it, which would um, render the, the the rights of parents to the you know the care, custody, and companionship of their of their own children a a basic fundamental constitutional right. But other than that, even that arguably is implicit in the Constitution already. And has been mm -hmm. um, has been, I think, upheld by numerous uh, federal um, court um, cases, precedents. So um, basically, if we if we enforce the Constitution, that's what it would take. Is but, but that it's it's the political difficulty of enforcing the Constitution. Um, it's the ignorance, I have to say, of many of our public officials and our own. Many of us, our own ignorance that we've we've lost uh, the you know the. The close connection, the awareness that we've once had in this country for the um, for the rights for, for our constitutional rights, the you know the the um, jealousy that Americans have traditionally had for protecting the the freedoms of the Constitution, I think has been diluted uh, seriously. Uh, the legal profession has been has been corrupted in many ways, which we think of the guardians. The, the media have not done their job to um, call attention to these abuses. In fact, in many cases, they've been cheerleaders for the abuses themselves. So I think the first thing we need to do is recover um, uh, is, is general public awareness. And I think what you're doing here, uh, you know, the, the conservative media, the Christian media, uh, the alternative media, um, libertarian media, in some cases, needs to uh, do more uh, of what they're trying to do, I realize. Uh, and that is bring these to public attention, to, to, to um, uncompromisingly um, uh, you know, ruthlessly, if you like, uh, uh, bring these things to, to public awareness, even if they have to slay some conservative sacred cows in order to do, to do it. Yes. Well, one of the first steps to conquer this thing is to be informed, and that's why I highly recommend the book. Yeah, uh, we're, we're going on 
40 minutes right now, but uh, one thing I'd like you to address, Dr. Baskerville, is you, you have put a lot of time and effort into these books and your writings, and I'm just interested in what it was that motivated you to write about these things and, and to try to warn people about what was going on with respect to the issues that you've been writing about. Yeah, well, I, um, I, I came across a number of these cases, you know, as everyone does nowadays, you can't, you can't avoid it. Just every, everyone in the Western world has friends, family members, themselves, who have come across many cases of, of divorce or accusations of, of sexual harassment or rape or, uh, you know, I've known colleagues in the academic world who've been thrown out of work for trying to um, bring, you know, to, to, to talk, write about these things. And as I, as I investigated them more carefully, I found that there was more to this than the, than the standard cliches, the platitudes, you know, of, of ugly divorce and nasty custody battle and so forth. I began to realize there was a political dimension to this. There was a, there's a political dynamic that nobody was paying attention to. And since politics is my field, I'm accustomed to analyzing politics. It's what I do. Um, I was shocked that my own colleagues in the academic world had never gone into any of this. And I began to find the same thing in the second book uh, with, the, with the sexual revolution. I found that here was this huge revolution in, in sexuality, this huge political phenomenon, and no one in the universities was exploring it in any kind of disinterested way. Sure, there's lots of people in the universities that themselves are advocates for the sexual revolution, but nobody in the universities was uh, was undertaking objective, disinterested, dispassionate scholarship to describe this the way we might describe, you know, something of the American Revolution or the you know the something in the in the past, the, the French Revolution. Um, so um, it, it's shocking to me that that my colleagues are all advocates for something that they should be they shouldn't be advocating. They should be studying. They should be studying in, in a detached and disinterested way. Um, so I knew something was wrong. It, it was very clear to me that something was was amiss here. And sure enough, um, the more I scratched uh, the surface, the more I found there was a huge um, iceberg beneath the tip of of, um, of, of political and legal abuse uh, that nobody was was. Uh, was paying any attention to. Well, that, do you have any future books in the uh, works that people should be looking for? Um, I'm working on a few right now. Uh, I'm not quite sure which one's going to come next. I, I thought about writing a, a general book on the sexual revolution um, uh, more generally on the cultural aspects of it. Um, but I'm not sure at this point. Uh, I'd like to write one about the abuses of the legal system. I'm increasingly encountering um, these kinds of abuses elsewhere in the legal system besides the sexual revolution. Again, I think that you know this is the um, this is the uh, the epicenter, the font of it. But I think it is increasingly poisoning the judiciary generally, as we saw again in the Kavanaugh case and others. This is high politics now. It's not something that just affects a few people behind closed doors. Um, I would like to write a book on the abuses of the academic world. I'm increasingly convinced now uh, of the the corruption of the academic world. I just reviewed a new book by John Ellis on the deterioration of the of academics. Um, I'm shocked at how not only left wing uh, public universities um, on, on the government payroll, but even um, Christian universities, Christian colleges are themselves corrupted very seriously. Um, by yeah. by ideology generally and sexual ideology in particular, they're compromising their standards 
uh, and they're making their accommodation with with ideology. So it's it's very. Um, those are my, those are my hopes. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to go from here. That's very okay, good. I think Rogers wants to close, but I want to ask one more thing. Where can people find your writings at the present time, and do you have a website? I do have a website. It's called stephenbaskerville.com. Uh, Stephen with a PH. Uh, it's, I'm kind of reconstructing it. Uh, you can see my books and many of my recent articles there. I've re I read a lot for Crisis Magazine. Um, uh, my books are available at, uh, on, on, that, on that site and on Amazon or the you know, Barnes & Noble, the standard places as well. I think one of the trends I observed in all of this is that we think we have disconnected and, and of course criminalized even the connection between our religious faith and politics and morality. We really haven't. We just replaced our Christian faith with a humanist faith. And, it, and religions in, in general are intolerant. Uh, and so, of course, this is not an issue of politics. This is an issue of discipleship and our families and, and uh, trusting that in the end, uh, God is sovereign and, and he has something going on that he knows what he's doing. And uh, this Christ that we're facing right now, uh, I see as uh, often a wake up for many people. Uh, for this kind of injustice that we've been talking about. So are, are we out of time now? Yeah, we're, we're coming up on 45 minutes, and I'm sure Dr. Baskerville has other you have things anything to do. Else? Yeah, uh, uh, Dr. Baskerville, do you have anything else you'd uh, like to add? Well, I, I, what you just said, I think, was very, was very apropos. Um, I, I must do one of my favorite themes, main themes, is the, is the development of, of political ide radical ideologies in the modern world. And many, I'm not the first person to observe that radical ideologies are oftentimes secularized religions or pseudo-religions. And I think right. that's precisely the case here. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, these, these things have become, a, um, you know, feminism, homosexualism, as I call it, transgenderism. Mm -hmm. It's not just homosexuality. It's not just women. It's not just the transgender people. It's, it's the politicization of these lifestyles that is really threatening our freedom. And, uh, we, you know, we've seen this before. And uh, I think that's really what we we need to be focusing on more and more. You bet. Well, we're out of time. Thank you very much, Stephen. Once again, the book is The New Politics of Sex, The Sexual Revolution, Civil Liberties, and the Growth of Government Power. I encourage our listeners to buy it and read it, digest it. It'll discourage you, but you have to know what the enemy is if we're going to defeat it. 